השם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוכים הבאים. We're back here on our Wednesday night uh, program of Stump the Rabbi. We're after a, a few divrei Torah. Bezot Hashem, you guys will ask some questions. Kadosh Baruch Hu, Bezot Hashem will give us the answers. Um, and uh, first and foremost, Chodesh uh, Tov, Rosh Chodesh Tov to everybody. Uh, when uh, a doubt comes in, we have to be besimcha. But uh, what simcha is there without Torah? Uh, so of course, Baruch Hashem will. Uh, Learn a little bit, try to uh, toil in it, and uh, enjoy the uh, the wisdom of the Torah. Uh, tonight's show will be for Ilu um, Nishmat, Sarah, Leah, Bat, Arye, Herschel, Chaim, and also Leavdin for Lema for Chaim, Itzchak, Ben, Rachel, Rabbanit Levana, Bat, Sarah, Rabbi Ephraim, Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sarah, Bat, Anat, Avi Mori. David Ben Asriya, Imi Morati, Doris Bat Jora. Um, and also for a Atzlacharaba, uh, for uh, Marsha Bat Julie, Ayla Bat Marsha, Samuel Ben Marsha, Sefas Ben Marsha, Alexander Ben Marsha, Louis Ben Marsha, Shaul Ben Farzane, and all of Am Israel and all the righteous Noahides, B'zat Hashem, will have a Atzlacha Rabba, Refua Shlema, Zivugagun, and all of the Bachot Yeshuot. So uh, for uh, any of you that are um, following us closely, whether you're on our WhatsApp or Facebook or any one of the groups, uh, today uh, you got a uh, message that we started our uh, Pulim campaign. Uh, this campaign is only a couple of weeks uh, before Pulim starts. Uh, but Baruch Hashem, uh, we already started sending money to Eretz Yisrael uh, to make sure that there is uh, that the families that are uh, in dire need are going to have uh, food to eat uh, for Purim and celebrate it uh, in no less uh, dignity than uh, what we do. Uh, Hashem. So uh, we have a uh, uh, about sixty families or so, uh, give or take uh, five hundred or so people. Uh, that already are uh, getting a uh, you know some money, uh, but we have Baruch Hashem thousands of others that uh, need your help. Uh, the the beauty of Purim is that it's one of those holidays that both uh, secular and Frum Jews celebrate alike. But uh, uh, really, the truth behind it is that uh, while some people celebrate Purim to uh, you know drinking and using it as an excuse to drink like crazy people and to uh, pretend they're somebody else by wearing different costumes uh, which it's perfectly fine if you're wearing a costume as long as it's modest but if your if your uh, costume is not modest then it's very very problematic also for those guys that uh, for whatever reason or another decide to dress like girls uh, as a costume it's uh, it's not a smart thing to do um, but uh, either way there's a the holiday of Purim is a beautiful holiday and uh, I wrote an article uh, several years ago and it's actually uh, included in my Sefer which Bezot Hashem one day will be in English as well um, this uh, this Purim is one of the last remaining uh, uh, I guess uh, uh, things that a person has to keep him connected to Judaism, where uh, unlike many of the other holidays, whether it be Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, uh, Pesach, uh, unfortunately in, a, uh, in the world that we live in today where uh, atheism, secularism, missionary activity, where you know, unfortunately people are adopting idolatry, uh, instead of uh, you know uh, learning about uh, the truth of the Torah, uh, what ended up happening is that a lot of people are very disconnected and uh, get to a point where they don't celebrate Purim, they don't celebrate Pesach, they they don't celebrate uh, Yom Kippur, they don't celebrate a lot of things. Uh, but Baruch Hashem, Purim is one of those, and Hanukkah is the same. Are some of those holidays that have a lot of bracha where everybody wants to, uh, to be a part of it. It's, uh, you're not really going to get much of a fight from somebody if you tell them, listen, why don't you come over to our house and celebrate pulling with us. You'll have cookies, you'll have cakes, you'll have food, you'll have uh, costumes, you'll have a uh, lot of uh, wonderful things. Very few people are going to say no. 
Uh, if you ask them to come for Leila Sedel, you know, some people are going to say, I'm not interested if they're not affiliated with, you know, being religious. Uh, if you tell them, listen, come to the Biknesset and fast with us, pray with us, and Yom Kippur or Tisha B'Av, uh, not everybody's going to jump on that bandwagon. But Purim is one of those things where it's a fantastic cube opportunity where you can get a lot of people to come and, uh, and, and actually uh, learn the truth. The problem is that uh, many times people uh, have events that bring a lot of unaffiliated Jews to the Bet Knesset, to the community, uh, but that opportunity is not taking advantage of, where instead of having it as an opportunity where you're going to teach them the truth of the Torah, you're going to teach them that it was the, uh, uh, the religious Jews that saved Am Yisrael during a, uh, uh, throughout all of the times, whether it be uh, uh, the religious Jews, the Maccabees of, uh, of Hanukkah, or it was the Tzadikim that fasted for three days uh, during Purim, and uh, Mordechai, the, the biggest Haredi in the world, that the uh, uh, Ben Ishchai says, he, he's the first person in the entire Tanakh that's called Yehudi. Mordechai Yehudi. Why is Mordechai called Mordechai Yehudi? It's the first time in the Tanakh that the word Yehudi, Jew, appears about Mordechai. So the Ben Ishchai says the reason why is because Mordechai had payers, had payers that were very, very long and very, very big, where you could identify that's a Jew from very far away. And it's a beautiful thing that uh, a person is proud of his Judaism. And uh, you have an opportunity to, uh, to get people closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu by showing them that the only thing that makes a Jew is a Jew is by their affiliation with the Torah, their uh, uh, engravement of the Torah and its values into their life. And it's a fantastic opportunity. But unfortunately today, when uh, people are uh, either idolizing a person or idolizing money or other things, uh, not uh, you know, not it's not often that these opportunities are truly taken advantage of, and it's important for us to know that uh, it's not just a uh, opportunity to, uh, uh, to you know to, to serve Hashem on our own, but it's also an opportunity to bring others to bring others as well. Now, of course, one of the things about Purim that's unique is that Purim is supposed to uh, create unity, and one of the ways that the uh, that the sages instituted to create unity is these three different mitzvot that you have. You have the Machatzit shekel, Matanot Le'avyonim, Mishloach Manot. These are three different mitzvot that a person needs to do in order to truly fulfill the obligations of Purim in addition to listening to the Megillah. Now, of course, a, uh, the, uh, the, the key is to make sure that you do these mitzvot the right way. You know, sometimes people give a mishloach manot that's full of candy and uh, nothing else. And they may have spent, you know, $150 full of candy, but it does not fulfill the mitzvah. Why? Because the mishloach manot has to be the equivalent of a meal. has to be equivalent of a meal. Uh, So it's important to do it, and it's important to do it on that day. The same thing goes with matanot le'evyonim, to feed the poor. You have to give, each person has to give uh, uh, to two people. And it's, uh, it's for each member of the family. Many times you'll have, let's say, the father or the mother of the family give, you know, uh, uh, $20 and say, oh, this covers everybody. No, it doesn't. You, it's, it's, if you have you and your husband and you have a few kids in your house, you have to do it for everybody. It's, a, it's an important mitzvah. This is, this is Purim. Purim is not just, it's not a costume. Purim is not a, uh, Purim is, a, is an opportunity for you to give uh, you know, and, and, and in essence, use what HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you in order to create unity among Am Yisrael. And it's actually one of those times uh, where uh, the sages teach that whoever asks you on that day, give. Don't, uh, don't investigate. Throughout the rest of the year, you should investigate who you give to. You should investigate your tzedakah to, uh, you know, before you give. But uh, during, uh, during Purim, you don't need to investigate. Now, the question is, why do we need to investigate Staka? Isn't everybody that needs Staka righteous? Isn't every campaign that you see on the internet with a big rabbi's name on it and even a picture sometimes, perhaps even a video from 20 years ago, but nonetheless, they affiliated to that current campaign. You know, isn't that have to do with it? Sometimes you'll even have letters. 
And so doesn't that mean that that campaign is 100% good? Doesn't that mean that whatever that campaign says on the internet that it's going to do, it's going to be fulfilled where it tells you that if you donate $180 or 180 shekels, you know, uh, uh, then all of your sins will be forgiven. Or if you have somebody that died and uh, you want to take them out of Gehenna, all you need to do is commit 180 shekels a month for 12 months or for three years and we'll take them out of Gehenom. Or they'll tell you, listen, you want to do a tikkun for a zillion and a half sins you've made throughout your entire life? All you got to do is just send $150, and that's it. We'll pray for you on, you know, during uh, this time, and that's it. You're done. It's as if you are a brand new person. Or on this auspicious day, as long as you donate $180, you're going to find your zivug this year. And on and on and on and all of these different uh, so-called campaigns and skulot. Question is, how come, how come there are still people that have not found their shiduch? How come there are still people that uh, have not gotten those blessings fulfilled? How come? How come? If these campaigns are real, how come? And the reason is because you have to make sure to know that uh, it's not a mitzvah to be naive. It's not a mitzvah to be naive. It's not a mitzvah to uh, to simply believe everything and everyone. And it's important for you to know that Hakadosh Baruch Hu does expect us to search what we're doing, to investigate what we're doing when it comes to tzedakah, no less than the uh, you know you do in your traditional investments. I had a guy contact me uh uh just a uh, the other day asking me about an investment that he wants to make now i generally don't speak about specific investments especially if people uh, ask me about stocks because i don't follow the stock market anymore i have 20 years of experience in it so i don't necessarily need to follow it to know what's going on but nonetheless if it's general advice somebody asks me about their business or about uh, general investment i don't mind asking it and uh, i don't mind answering it i don't mind guiding people uh, it's perfectly fine as long as you know people are number one they're receptive and don't waste my time and number two they're actually my students and they're not just people that are just looking to get free advice now uh there are times where people want something more specific and they start uh you know asking me for stock tips and things like that i don't have them because i don't follow but even more so, the worst kind is when people ask me for advice, I give them the advice, and then they start debating me. That's generally a, a person that I'll never give advice to and sometimes even put them on block simply because it's annoying and I don't have time for that. So when it comes to uh, giving people advice, uh, I don't look at investments in, the, uh, you know, in a real estate or in a market or in a business as uh, as something that is all too different than your investments for eternity really the main difference is the fact that your investments in this house or this building or this stock or this business uh, at the best the best case scenario is it'll work out it'll appreciate in value you'll make some money out of it and perhaps maybe donate some stock that's the best case scenario uh now the worst case scenario is you lose your money that's the worst case scenario. Now, on the other hand, when it comes to tzedakah, the best case scenario is you give a certain amount of money in tzedakah to the right place and it's impossible for you to lose. The second, uh, the, the worst case scenario is you give the same amount or even more to the wrong place and it's actually considered a sin. And you'll get punished for it. And Rabbi Nachman Mibreslav says someone that gives tzedakah to the wrong places is considered as if they've wasted seed. As if they've wasted seed because seed is the shefa that a Baruch Hu gives you and money is the shefa that a Baruch Hu gives you. And when a person simply wastes it, it's uh, obviously admonished. It's, not, uh, it's, it's frowned upon in Shemaim to say the least. So a person has to know that when it comes to giving, you can't just simply believe everything. You can't just simply give blindly, even though most people do. Most people do. So I always tell people, generally speaking, when you're donating, you have to uh, uh, connect your personal experience to wherever you're donating. Meaning, if you've benefited uh, from such and such location, whether it be a yeshiva, a rabbi, a, a, a kiruv organization, 
whatever it is uh, that you've benefited from this place that's continuing to spread more Torah the most, that's the place you want to give to. Uh, you know, a lot of times people want to give to the big names. Why? Because they figure if it's a big name, surely it's reputable, surely it's good, and it's not necessarily always the case. You know, many times people like to tell, ask me, oh, listen, Rabbi uh, Kanievsky is on, uh, on the picture of this campaign. Do you think it's okay? Do you think the blessing will come true? And I always tell them, honestly, I personally don't think that Rabbi Kanievsky is even aware of that particular campaign. They put his picture on it. I mean, you're, you're not going to find Rabbi Kanievsky looking on the internet to see where you'll find him. So uh, I don't think that uh, you're going to have much uh, 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 double checking on that. But quite frankly... I think that there's a lot of big tzaddikim that are thrown on the internet as supporters of certain campaigns that uh, you have to double check, just to say it nicely. Uh, and, uh, and the key is to know is that many times people want to donate to these big campaigns because they figure that if this big rabbi is behind it, therefore it's going to work. And many times it doesn't work. And part of the reason is because you gave it to the wrong place. Sometimes it's a good place, but still the wrong place for you. Uh, Your neshama is not connected to that particular place. Sometimes it's the wrong place and it looks like the right place. Uh, Sometimes it's the wrong amount. Sometimes it's the wrong prayer. There's a lot of different things that go into it. But really the biggest thing we want to talk about is is, is legitimacy of things. Because we saw that in Parashat Pekudeh, this week's Parashat, Akadosh Baruch Hu says, Ele pekudea mishkan, mishkan ha'edut, asher pukad al pi Moshe. This, uh, these are the reckonings of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of testimony, uh, which were reckoned at Moshe's bidding. So we see that this tabernacle is, uh, is obviously is the Beta Mikdash of the desert. Uh, as I said the other day, out of the three uh, temples, if you will, or, or, or houses for HaKadosh Baruch Hu that were built in this world, only one of them was not destroyed. The first and the second Bet HaMikdash were destroyed, but the tabernacle of Moshe Rabbeinu was not destroyed. And one of the uh, you know big reasons behind it, aside from the fact that anything that Moshe touched HaKadosh Baruch Hu vowed will be eternal, just like the five, you know, the Torah is eternal, Am Yisrael is eternal, uh, and so is the tabernacle that Moshe Rabbeinu built was uh, indestructible. So you had the, uh, the, the Kedusha uh, that came from Moshe Rabbeinu protected the tabernacle despite the fact that there were wars against Amalek and, and, and against the Midianim and Sichon. And, you know, there was a lot of wars, a lot of turmoil, and yet the tabernacle uh, survived perfectly well. While the Bet Mikdash, the first and the second one, that were much bigger, much uh, stronger material, uh, much more, uh, 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 much bigger army, and so on, yet they uh, they aged and lost uh, uh, lost their place in the world. So one of the reasons is the fact that you have Moshe Rabbeinu behind it. The second reason is the fact that you see from this week's parasha that. Moshe Rabbeinu told everybody to stop giving once we've reached our quota of what we need to build this tabernacle. That's it. We don't need you to give extra because the money that you're giving is not going to Moshe Rabbeinu's pocket. It's not going to the Leviim. It's not going to any. It's going to specifically. uh, It's an investment for your eternity. And you see the level of integrity and honesty that Moshe Rabbeinu had. It was second to none. And that integrity was not just by Moshe, but also by Aaron, a Kohen, and his sons, also by Bezalel, and all of the people that were involved in the tabernacle were very, very holy people. There were a lot of holy people, but these were the exceptional ones, above and beyond everyone else. So that's another reason why you have a, uh, a significant blessing here, where you have holy people behind it. Now, of course, it's a, uh, that's, that's one thing we want to look at in any place that we donate to, who's behind it, what holy person is behind it. The second thing that we see is that this parasha starts with Ele Pekudeh. Ele Pekudeh, these are the reckonings. What does it mean, these are the reckonings? 
what does it mean these are the reckonings well the sages teach us that uh the uh the second temple and the first temple lost their blessings because they they were missing something they were missing something what were they missing they were missing a certain type of sanctity that Moshe Rabbeinu had and they didn't have where the first uh temple the first Bet HaMikdash Shlomo HaMelech's uh, Bet HaMikdash had a lot of Kedusha the Gemara in Masechet Yoma says that the uh the Shekhinah uh would uh, was on top of the first Bet HaMikdash each day there would be a miracle where the uh there would be a fire coming from heaven in the image of a lion to uh consume all of the korbanot all of the sacrifices there were endless miracles the uh the Gemara in Masechet Yoma page 21b says that there was uh, the the temple the Bet HaMikdash of Shlomo HaMelech had golden fruit trees golden fruit trees no 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 analogy here no uh, parable here literally there were golden fruit trees and it's actually one of the ways that HaKadosh Baruch Hu made the uh the uh the Kohanim wealthy because the uh uh the uh the Kohanim uh the Levites would uh wait for the uh season to change and the uh the fruits of the golden fruit trees would uh would fall from the tree and they would be able to take it and 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 live off of this gold so you see the Gemara talks about extraordinary things that happen and in fact the uh the Gemara elaborates in a couple of places about these special golden uh fruit trees which Bezat Hashem will also be uh in the third Bet HaMikdash some people think these are just fairy tales but anyone that learns uh, uh knows that uh the, the basic meaning is never something that you run away from there are there are many times and practically always hidden meanings additional meanings different facets to the same diamond but the basic shot is always there so these golden trees actually existed and in fact, the Gemara in Masechet Juma, page 39b, talks about how Shlomo HaMelech had these, uh, the, these golden trees planted uh, all over the, uh, the, the Bet HaMikdash. Uh, and uh, the, uh, when the, uh, uh, the idol worshippers uh, took over the Bet HaMikdash, they, uh, of course, stopped growing. But in addition to that, one of the things that you see that Shlomo Melech had an enormous amount of gold, an enormous amount of gold. And uh, where did uh, uh, Shlomo Melech have this enormous amount of gold? The same Gemara Masechet Yoma, uh, page 44b. You could really, uh, if you want to learn in Parashat Pekudeh, you should learn Masechet Yoma because there's countless sources that are connected to the two. When uh, page 44 of Masechet Yoma, it talks about how uh, Shlomo HaMelech knew that there were seven different types of gold. Seven different types of gold uh, in the world uh, where uh, the Gemara says there's ordinary gold. Uh, there is Zahav Tov, which is called good gold. There's uh, uh, Zahav Ophir, which is gold of Ophir. Uh, lustrous gold. Sachut gold. Closed gold. And Parvaim gold. Seven different types of uh gold the uh the uh, the gold that's ordinary and the good gold are uh mentioned in a uh, uh in uh, in genesis chapter 2 verse 12 where it says that the uh the gold of this land was good the gold of Ophir, uh which uh came from the uh Ophir. Ophir was a uh um uh, something that Shlomo Melech mentions in uh, the book of Kings, Kings 1, chapter 9, verse 28. Uh, this, uh, this, this, this unique gold was a very precious gold. Then you have the lustrous gold that uh, resembled pearls. Then you have the Sachut gold. The Sachut gold was uh, because it was like uh, spun like thread, the Sachut gold. And um, the closed gold, Zav Sagul, was that uh, the moment that anyone started selling it, 
every shop would be closed why because nobody would be interested in any other product other than this gold and the Pervaim gold was uh, a unique gold that resembled the blood of the bulls the blood of the bulls so you have different types of gold and the Gemara also talks about how one of the unique things about this types of gold was not just its malleability or or it's a uh, it's color if you will uh but uh, rather the fact that the uh one type of gold here reproduced itself would give birth to another gold you put one bar in your closet and uh wait a little bit and it will become two bars you give birth to another gold so this is one of the ways that Shlomo Amelech was able to uh acquire an enormous amount of gold he knew exactly where to find this unique type of gold uh and uh the point is is that you had a very very special blessing in the first Bet HaMikdash someone that did not see the first Bet HaMikdash has never seen beauty that's how beautiful the first Bet HaMikdash was uh but yet the first Bet HaMikdash had one uh, uh deficiency if you will which is that it was uh, uh Shlomo Melech used a lot of non-Jewish workers and uh although those uh non-Jewish workers weren't uh you know uh, uh Nazis or anything like that uh but the fact is that the since there were non-Jews that were building this Bet HaMikdash the supernatural uh aspect that the tabernacle had from the Kedusha of Moshe Rabbeinu that made it simply uh, 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 something that uh, overcame the nature of the world uh, was not uh, in the, uh, you know, was not found in the uh, first Bet HaMikdash where the tabernacle would never get old despite the desert, horrific environment, the wars, the constant moving. It never got old. It stayed brand new as, uh, as it was from the beginning. Whereas the first Bet HaMikdash, despite all of the gold, the beauty, and everything else, it got old. It got old. It had to be repaired, uh, replaced, and so on. So that, uh, what seems minor, was major. That, meaning it's like you have a, a two uh, 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 yeshivot. One has a big tzaddik. That's serious about helping Am Yisrael do tshuva. The other one, it's good, but they're just focused on whoever attends. Whoever attends, they're gonna, uh, you know, focus on whoever is there. Very good, but not the same thing as the other one. Why? Because one of them is worried about the Jews that are inside and the Jews that are outside, and one is worried about the Jews that are inside. Okay, no problem. Third example was the second Bet Hamikdash. Second Bet Hamikdash. The was built uh, by uh, uh, King Cyrus was uh, was behind it. Also, you had uh, Herod, the uh, the tyrant, uh, and of course, not only did it uh, not have the uh, the blessing of the tabernacle, it didn't even have the blessing of this first Bet Hamikdash, where the Gemara in Masechet Yomah says that there were five different things that were missing from the. Uh, uh, second Bet Hamikdash that were that existed in the first Bet Hamikdash, the Aron Hakodesh, the uh, Luchot Abrit, uh, you know these things were not in the second Bet Hamikdash, uh, and in fact the Gemara says that even the fire from heaven that came down was not the same. Why was it not the same? The Gemara in Masechet Yuma, page twenty one B, says that the fire from heaven that came down to consume the korbanot. In the first Bet HaMikdash, the fire was the, in the image of a lion. In the second Bet HaMikdash, the fire was in the image of a dog. Why a dog? Because the Sitra Achra, the Yetzara, was in essence feeding off of the second Bet HaMikdash. Was feeding off of the second Bet HaMikdash. Was in essence in a, uh, a very superior position, if you will, in the second Bet HaMikdash. Even though 
it's a yeshiva or a bet knesset, still the yetzara is very, very much involved. Unfortunately, we see that today where you have certain places where it's a beautiful bet knesset or yeshiva or whatever it is, but the Torah that's coming out of there is not exactly glut. Like you have organizations in the world that happen to have as many locations as Starbucks in Russia, in Ukraine, in America, in Australia, in Israel, in every corner in the world that there's Jews, and even if there isn't Jews, you'll have this organization's uh, shlichim uh, uh, over there. But the Torah that you hear from many of them today is nowhere near the same Torah that you heard from their forefathers a couple of hundred years ago. Their forefathers were willing to die for a single mitzvah of tzitzit. Today, the uh, people are uh, very, very different. They tell you that the, uh, there is no uh, Gehenim, the, the 100% Kfira. So you see that there is a very, very big difference. But of course, when you're talking about organizations that uh, send their Shlichim everywhere, you can't just say, oh, it's all bad. There is a lot of good. There's a lot of good where you see these people are Muslim Nefesh, they sacrifice their life. They go to India and try to build a community there despite the uh, uh, assassination that took place uh, and terrorism that took place uh, there not too long ago. Uh, They go and they sacrifice their life to try to build some type of Jewish school there and community there. And they go to uh, different places in Africa and different places in uh, all over the world. So there is a lot of good that's there, similar to the second Bet HaMikdash. But... If you compare it to the first Bet HaMikdash, it's almost like world apart. If you compare it to the first Bet HaMikdash, it's almost like a different religion. So again, it's important for a person to know where they stand in order to know where they're going. We can't continue to fool ourselves and pretend like everything is perfect. Because if everything was perfect, Rabotai, then everybody would be uh, in a very different place than they are today. So now the question is, how does this all have to do with staka, with money? What, what does it all have to do with it? Well, first and foremost, we see that uh, these uh, these dust, this tabernacle, uh, obviously were not just built out of uh, toothpicks. You know, there was a lot of money that put into them. The, the first Betamikdash, the second Betamikdash, but when a person really thinks about you know luxury and so on the, you know the image of the tabernacle doesn't usually appear as something that is a, uh, a luxurious you figure that oh it was nice but it wasn't like the first bet it wasn't like the second bet although you are right that there was a lot more gold and silver in the first and second bet this does not mean that there wasn't a lot in the tabernacle and I actually did the uh, rough calculation today where we actually saw that the uh, the calculation in this week's parasha and in this week's parasha it talks about how you have a uh, a tabernacle that's traveling for 40 years that it would seem doesn't uh, you know doesn't have much but when you actually look at the calculations you see something extraordinary what is extraordinary you see that it had eighty-seven thousand sela of gold and over three hundred thousand three hundred one thousand seven hundred seventy five sela of silver now this doesn't really sound like much. Eighty-seven thousand sounds like eighty-seven thousand dollars, maybe a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so it's a cool tabernacle, right? Three hundred thousand sounds like okay, so that three hundred thousand silver. Okay, so you know, but of course, when we think about the first and second big mikdash, we're thinking billions. I did the calculation, and again, this is a rough, rough calculation with. Gold being at approximately two thousand dollars today, the eighty-seven thousand sela is close to ninety million dollars. Ninety million dollars worth of gold in the tabernacle, and the three hundred thousand or so sela of silver was a little bit less than four million dollars. A little bit less than four million dollars. So you're talking about 
a hundred million dollar almost building traveling in the desert for 40 years it's no chump change you know we're not talking about a uh, little tent with like sometimes our mind tells us that i had you know some skin some nice images perhaps uh you know a cool maybe two three thousand dollar pen over there you know but at tzaddikim at tzaddikim so that's good that counts no no we're also talking about something that was very very expensive very valuable and of course if you tie inflation to it and so on you're talking about something that was extraordinary now yes this was lesser amounts than the first and second bet but that too the chachamim say is to prove a point is that although the uh, tabernacle had less gold and silver it had more blessing and the reason why is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu rests his present the Shechina doesn't go where there's necessarily the most amount of money it goes where there's the most amount of tzaddikim so you're not necessarily always going to find a Kadosh Baruch Hu at the biggest organization that has the most amount of donors you will find a Kadosh Baruch Hu with a place that has the most amount of righteousness the most amount of Kedusha, the most amount of tzaddikim. The other thing is that the uh the Kadosh says, why is it say Ele? Ele is these, these are. What is these are? It says that Akadosh Bahu is trying to tell us, you see all these things, all of these parts, all this gold, hundred million dollars in, uh, in, in gold and silver, and all types of jewels, and all types of things. You see all of these don't think that that's what made this tabernacle special because the buildings that Am Yisrael built after were much more elaborate much uh, uh you know more expensive but yet HaKadosh Baruch Hu was in the Mishkan in the in the tabernacle and a uh with 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 much more holiness there why because it's not about the money the uh Kadosh says he brings the uh midrash rabbah in uh bamidbar where he says why is money in hebrew in the uh, biblical language called mamun because mamon stands for matamune matamune is uh what are you uh what are you counting as if to say what are you counting this money so much why are you always worried about your uh uh, your investments in real estate, your investments in Bitcoin and stocks and businesses. Why are you always counting that money? Don't you realize that it's only going to stay here? Don't you realize it's only going to stay here? It's not going to come with you. And many times you see that there are certain people that they uh, uh, want to donate their money you know, to, to places that are not necessarily places that are producing the most amount of kedusha most amount of uh good things they're more inclined to invest their money in a piece of property in a piece of a, uh, a business and even in a uh, organization that simply seems like it's more popular that's that's what uh, a lot of people do and so the torah wants to teach us a little bit about our our those investments those investments why because while we just learned that money is not something that a person should really uh, uh, spend so much time counting, you know, you shouldn't uh, uh, lose sleep over how much money you have and how much money you want to have and all of those things. Of course, it's everybody's got to manage their expenses and their, you know, and, and their, and their uh, 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 um, what they need to do in their life. But people simply become obsessed with it so much so that there are literally endless amount of money shows. Uh, that have now infiltrated themselves into the Jewish world. There are now Jewish money shows, which is, uh, again, on one end resourceful, on another end a little bit ridiculous. That uh, we uh, we are at that point that it's a you'll see uh, you know a lot more people watching a money show than you'll see people let's say learning Torah. Uh, and again, it it kind of shows us a little bit of a sign of the times. I'm not necessarily frowning upon it that it's bad. I'm just saying it's we should know where we stand. That you're 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 more likely to uh, get a 500 people to show up to a lecture about money than you will about Torah that could save their eternity. It's simple. You're more likely to 
uh, you know, uh, convince a guy to spend a million and a half dollars or two million dollars to buy himself another house that he doesn't need or another business that he doesn't want, uh, especially after he finds out that the books are cooked, then for him to use that couple of million dollars to go and build another Torah institution that produces more tzaddikim. It just is what it is. And especially if a person doesn't see a, uh, a, a financial incentive from it, where they say, listen, I'm only going to donate if I get the write-off. I'm only going to donate if I get my name on a building. I'm only going to donate if I get exclusive undivided attention from the rabbi or from the uh, people behind it and special relationship. And everybody you know, does their thing in, in such a fashion that they expect a lot and it kind of kills it. Why does it kind of kill it? Because it shows that really the the the, uh, the driving force behind that donation is not necessarily as pure as it looks, and that's what we actually saw in the uh, first and second Bet Hamikdash. Beautiful buildings, but they did not have the holiness of the tabernacle. So, what was so special about the tabernacle aside from Moshe Rabbeinu? I mean, Moshe Rabbeinu is enough. He's Keneged Kulam. He's uh, against the whole nation. Uh, he's meaning he's equivalent as if uh, he's valued the same as if the, against the entire nation. But I actually saw something today that was very extraordinary that uh, I think is uh, gives us a little bit more clarity. More clarity as far as why does the Hashem, why does Hashem specify the gold, the quantity of gold, uh, a few extra words before and after the gold. Why does you repeat it again this week when it was already mentioned last week? And let's go delve into it. And how does that connect also to the first and second Bet Mikdash? So let's see. We see that this week in Parashat Pekudeh, the Torah tells us in uh, in uh, chapter 38, the beginning of the parasha, in verse number uh, 24, 24, 25, that uh, all the gold that was used for the work, for the holy work, the raised gold was 29 kikal, 730 shekels in the sacred shekels. The silver of the senses of the assembly was 100 kikal, 1,775 shekels in the sacred shekels. A beka for every head, a half shekel in a sacred shekels. For all intents and purposes, for most people that have not looked at Onkelos or the Gemara or the Midrash or have had a Chidush, everything I just read, you're asking yourself right now, what did he just say? Did he just curse me out? Is he, is he making fun of me? Why is he reading this? What does that have to do with me? Let me tell you. Onkelos Tzadik says, what does all of this mean? All the gold that was used for the work, for all the holy work, the raised gold was 29 kikal. Raised gold. Why? What is this raised gold? What is this raised gold? Backtrack to last week's parashat Vayekel. Akadosh Baruch Hu says, in uh, chapter 35, verse number 22. And even before it, in a uh, verse number 21, where it uh, says, Every man whose heart inspired him came, and everyone whose spirit motivated him brought the portion for, of Hashem for the work of the oil moed, for all its services and for the sacred garments, the men came with the women. Everyone whose heart motivated him brought bracelets, nose rings, ring, body ornaments, every kind of gold ornament, and every man who raised a raising of gold to Hashem. So again, we see this language of a. Uh, person that was motivated that was inspired and we gave this raised gold what is this raised gold what is this raised gold so first and foremost onkelos explains know that when it, the torah says that 
each person came and brought the gold it was due to their to their heart being inspired and onkelo says that means it's everyone that their spirit perfected them meaning that they were using they were doing tshuva they were doing tshuva and through that tshuva they got the inspiration to donate because they were doing tshuva they got the inspiration to donate but not just any type of tshuva where they started keeping shabbat kosher but they continued uh uh you know wasting seed and uh being immoral and cheating in lying no 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 not just any type of chuba they were doing a specific type of chuba a chuba that inspired and perfected them and in fact it led them to give an enormous amount of gold enormous amount of gold i mean if we look at the comparison here we see that this gold was almost a hundred million dollars worth of gold whereas the silver was almost four million dollars first and foremost you should know the the gold and the silver was given by two different people while the gold was given by everybody that was inspired by their tshuva they gave an enormous amount they weren't obligated to do it it's just simply anybody that was inspired to do it gave the silver on the other hand was a obligation on a specific group of people who are those people the people that were fit to be the soldiers of Amisrael. anyone any man between the ages of 20 to 60 had to give a half a shekel had to give the silver why because they had to protect themselves from Ainara when Akadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe Rabbeinu to do a census and count the people count how many soldiers we have and it can't be anybody as a soldier it has to be righteous people people that fulfill mitzvot if a person was a uh shabbat he didn't survive the day they would kill him if a person was an idol worshiper he died if a person was scared to go to war can't be in war he just got married can't go to war just build a house can't go to war so you're looking at these people that went to war were really really righteous people but in order to even fit the description they had to be men no women soldiers and two be between the ages of 20 and 60. and several times in the Torah asks Moshe to do a census and that census is something that we have to know about because we're not allowed to count Jews and because it brings Ainara it brings evil eye so Kadosh says instead of counting the Jews count something each one of them has to bring a silver coin has to bring a, a half a shekel and you count the shekels instead of counting the Jews today if you are looking to count let's say for a minyan you count shoes or you count kipot or you count uh talit uh, you know especially if you know if, unless you're in a uh keila where the young men that are unmarried uh, don't wear a talit then you'll have a problem counting but the point being is is that you can't count Jews not allowed to count Jews it brings aina it brings evil eye but these specific people these soldiers were righteous people with tzaddikim showing us that the uh the people that went to war to defend Am Yisrael didn't need to have specific battle skills and uh guns and uh knives and all types of fighting skills no they need to be holy why because once you're holy Akadosh Baruch Hu does the rest this is actually how the Midrash and the Zohar Kadosh uh explain how did the Maccabees that were all tzaddikim learning in bet midrash all day how did they beat the vicious army of the greeks i mean the greeks were big fighters how did these little avrechim that were maybe 150 pounds uh, soaking wet how did they beat so many of them forget about the quantity how did they beat even one the uh the, the chachamim teach us that as soon as they held the sword akadosh Buhu made the sword do whatever it wants whatever he wants the sword meaning all they had to do is hold the sword Derishtadlut was hold the sword Akadosh Baruch Hu did the rest in so many words one sword start killing uh, uh thousands of people which is something that a human being doesn't uh, doesn't have the ability this is also why the reason why you're never gonna find a uh a uh a big uh gdolado uh big tzaddik telling people listen why don't you go learn karate why don't you go learn uh martial arts uh, of other kinds 
Why don't you go buy yourself a, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, building full of guns? That's not the way of Am Yisrael. We're not saying that uh, you, you need to uh, 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 be uh, delusional and walk around on enemy uh, lines thinking that God's going to protect you. Obviously, you have to, you know, uh, have common sense. But the amount of energy that people spend in uh, these types of things of, of thinking that they're going to defend themselves, they don't realize who's really running the world. So here we see that the smaller part of money that came for the tabernacle came from the righteous soldiers. Four million dollars worth of, uh, of, of silver. The bigger amount came from Baalei Tshuva. But why is it Baalei Tshuva? Why? What do they do Tshuva for exactly? says that the uncle says that these people were people that were perfected people that did chuva what do they do chuva how do, what's the hint of them doing chuva based on what they gave what did they give the men came with the women meaning that both men and women had to do chuva here everyone whose heart motivated him brought bracelets nose rings ring and body ornaments Khumaz. Chumaz, which Onkelos calls it machuz. What's a uh, machuz? What's a chumaz? What's a body ornament? The Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 64a says, this was a immorality uh, ornament that they would put on their uh, sex organ. Meaning, this specific donation was not just a donation of gold. It was simply them raising their hands and proud proud listen i'm done with this immorality i'm done with this immorality i'm done with these jokes i'm done with desecrating hashem's name i'm done with, I'm with hiding all types of perversions in the closet i'm done with it i'm giving away all of these perverted tools all of these perverted uh, uh, uh things that are in there and i'm done and instead of uh, what our logic would say, why would HaKadosh Baruch Hu want these filthy things that they put, these gold things that they put on their male member or female members? Like, it's disgusting. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Dafkai want it. Why Dafkai want it? Because that's their tshuva. That's what shows me that they're really doing tshuva. Many times, you're going to see people donate a lot of money to a Bet Knesset, a yeshiva, but... You're going to see those very same people that bought the Aliyah on Yom Kippur, that bought the uh, different uh, things on the high holidays, drive on Shabbat, drive on the holiday, desecrate Hashem's name, be corrupt in business, do all types of things that show that that donation was simply an advertisement of nothing good. It was an advertisement that they have that Hashem gave them money. It was not an advertisement of their connection to Hashem. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, they raised their hand each time they gave gold. They raised their hand and showed it. I'm giving this away. Why? Why? Isn't it embarrassing? No, I'm not embarrassed of my tshuva. You see, this, this thing, this gold, this perversion, this immorality was what's keeping me distant from Hashem. I'm giving it away. To what? I'm giving it to the tabernacle. I'm giving it to the Bet HaMikdash. I'm done with it. This gold symbolized tshuva. Tshuva for the idolatry that we fell for at the uh, Mount Sinai, the golden calf. The lack of rebuke for the people that even they didn't fall for the idolatry itself, the golden calf, didn't rebuke those that did. So that was tshuva for those two things. But also the gold represented a tshuva, an elevation of the soul for tshuva of immorality. Now, this is something extremely significant to the extent that it gave a life of its own to the Bet HaMikdash of the desert, to the tabernacle, that the first and second Bet HaMikdash did not have. How do we know it didn't have? We see. We see that it may have had it at some point, but the destruction of the first Bet HaMikdash was for what? For idolatry, for murder, for uh, uh, um, immorality. Idolatry, murder, and immorality. 
these are the very same things that this gold represented so although a lot more gold was donated to the first and second beta mikdash that gold was not of the same spiritual value as the gold we see in the mishkan in parashat pekudeh because the gold of the mishkan was gold that came was was tzedakah that came from Baalei tshuva from people that really meant that they wanted a connection with hashem and they're willing to sacrifice all of the garbage of the past they are done with it and that's one of the things that each and every single one of us has to know that at the time of the beta mikdash anytime somebody would make a sin uh, accidentally they would have to bring a sacrifice but that sacrifice was only part of the job the bigger part was the prayer that they had to do to do tshuva because if you didn't do tshuva there's no point of bringing a sacrifice and that's really the same thing when it comes to today each time a person you know gives zaka they want to donate x amount of money for this or for that you have to understand if the if you are not doing tshuva along with that staka you're simply throwing your money away that's really what's happening you're throwing your money away now it's still good to do it because maybe that staka will give you the merit to open up your heart and hopefully do tshuva one day but don't think that that staka by itself that charity by itself is a replacement for you doing tshuva and fixing your actions and thereby we go back to the organization itself why do I care if I give my $180,000 or $180 or whatever amount of money to one Torah organization versus another? Because sometimes I have the inspiration to do tshuva and that's why I give tzedakah. Sometimes I have the motivation just to give, but not necessarily to change myself. That's when I need the organization to help me. You see, I don't need an organization that only helps other people. I need an organization that also helps me. So if I'm going to donate, I want an organization that is reminding me that I need to do tshuva, that I need to fix myself. And therefore, if this campaign that you have here or this campaign that you have there or this organization that you have here or this organization that you have there if all of these places that are out there are simply telling me of all the wonderful things that they're doing elsewhere they're helping this guy they're helping that guy they're doing all types of great things but none of it connects to me i don't watch any of their videos i don't care for any of their videos i don't care for any of their books I don't it has no connection to me so who's gonna be the one that reminds me to do tshuva who's gonna be the one that reminds me to fix myself and that's where a person needs to think clearly before they donate a single penny they have to think sometimes I do have the strength to go and motivate myself to do tshuva and that is what's motivating me to donate but that's not always the case more times than not I don't have that that strength to do tshuva I have a strength a few dollars I want to do something good I'm a good person so I give here and I give there but in reality that stock that I'm giving it's not worth much why God doesn't need my money says mine is the money mine is the gold said the Hashem the God of legions so it's not the money that Hashem wants he wants our heart he wants our tshuva so if the organization is not doing anything for me to help me do tshuva then why am I giving it to them what is they doing that is actually helping me to go to Allah them helping I don't know their local students or their uh I don't know employees or their people yeah that's great but I need somebody to help me do tshuva because that's what's going to give my staka real value value that will last no less than the tabernacle of Moshe Rabbeinu value that will be appreciated in such magnitude that HaKadosh Baruch Hu says that staka that money that's eternal why because it came with tshuva 
it came with as a servitude of Hashem. It's a person refining himself and using Tzedakah as, number one, a way to refine himself, but also as a uh, 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 something that he uh, shows as this is a sign that I refine myself. Hence the reason why the Torah tells us, and Onkelos elaborates on it, where he says this is not only people that have uh, elevated themselves, but also HaKadosh Baruch Hu reminds us multiple times that this was not just gold, but this was raised gold. What does it mean raised gold? Each time they gave the gold, they raised it in the air. I'm doing tshuva. And that, Rabotai, is something that you have to be proud of. If the organization, the rabbi, the whoever, campaign that's out there is not really motivating you to do that, you have to think twice before you invest there your eternal investments. This is something that I thought of. This is something that I've seen. And Bezat Hashem, this is something that we can learn from. Bezat Hashem, we'll continue learning, we'll continue doing, we'll continue giving in order to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu with all of what we do. And Bezat Hashem, this too will bring sanctification to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen. Hashverosh, the Persian king, made a feast filled with bling. For his third year of reign he did celebrate. The Jews came happily, they didn't even deliberate. The feast was simply a ball. Food and drink filled every hall. Hashem was angered by the reckless behavior. Haman's evil decree was punishment, so our evil actions would waver. Ahashverosh had a ton to drink. Queen Vashti he wished to bring, but this was not her wish, and the king she did scorn. After all, she grew a tail and a horn. The blood of Ahasuerus came to a boil. That's when the advisors came to toil, to decide what should be done with the queen who refused to come. The evil Haman, behold, his plan he so expertly did mold. To kill the queen he desired, this plan Ahasuerus admired. Higher and higher Haman rose, a new law was proposed. All must bow to Haman on high, but Mordechai HaTzadik did not comply. King Ahasuerus began his quest to find a queen who would be the best. Esther, Mordechai's niece, was taken and adorned with fleece. Haman's hatred for Mordechai did swell. All the Jews he wished to dispel. So Haman convinced the king to sign the wicked decree with his signet ring. The cries of the Jews filled the city. Our situation was truly a pity. Mordechai prayed and Esther dreaded for approaching the king could land her beheaded. King Ahasuerus sat in his yard. With beauty and grace he did regard his queen Esther at last. For her his scepter he did cast. To her own special feast Esther did invite the king and Haman who was filled with delight. Yet when Mordechai refused to bow, this Haman did not allow. King Ahasuerus made a request for Haman to give his best advice on how to reward a favor, but this honor Haman wrongly did savor. Since Haman believed the gift was for him, he conveyed his advice with a giant grin. You shall dress him in the king's royal robes. With the crown shall he parade the roads. Ahasuerus commanded without delay, Haman shall create this grand display. For Mordechai, who was the one deserving, it was him who Haman would be serving. A second invitation Esther did extend for Ahasuerus to attend. The queen begged at the feast that the decree against her nation be creased. At once the king did rule to hang Haman the fool. 
poof went Haman's vicious decree. Of the Jews' victory, Hashem did guarantee. Mordechai strode through town, looking so refined. Atop his head, the king's crown did shine. This was not his only reward to reap, for Haman's house was his to keep. Haman's ten sons we did hang. Our enemies were defeated with a big bang. That is why, to this day, we celebrate Purim in a special way. Mishlamach Manot we give to a friend. A special mishta we make sure to attend. And Matanot Lavyonim to the poor we send. We dress up as a queen, king, or sword in order for Vinahafochu to be restored.